So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Yes, but it's funny, but before I do, I will tell you that metaphor of of air, I I actually had a conversation with a senior leader who uh, I basically used that metaphor. I said, listen, I mean this in the most gentle way possible, but when you walk in the room, the air goes out. I said, that's why people aren't telling you what's wrong. They're not being candid with you about what's wrong because quite frankly, they're just afraid of you, you know, and, and that's just a, not a good motivator at the end of the day. That, that, that causes people to think about self-preservation, not us preservation, as our buddy Jen. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today is a fun day. We are having guest number one back on the show, Chip Youth. Hopefully this will come out as episode number 550 so we can just go with that real 5-0 theme here. So Chip, tell us what's tell us what's happened since we talked to you 500 and something episodes ago. Well, first off, I can't believe it's been that long. You've made quite a successful little venture here. I didn't know how long this was going to last for you, but 550, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. This is it though. I think we're cooked. I think we're no. <laughs> well, yeah, I uh, well first of all, I was honored to be the inaugural guest on your podcast and I've been a subscriber ever since and like I said you've you've had a lot of interesting conversations, done a great, great bit of amazing work on the side. But as far as I'm concerned, I guess some things have changed. I'm I'm still with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department full-time. I'm in my 29th year there, 30th year in law enforcement. And I'm currently commanding the Logistical Support Division, which is administrative. Most of my team members in the division are professional staff. They're not sworn police officers. I've got uh, three commanders and a couple of managers reporting to me, and then the rest are all, again, professional staff folks. So that's a, that's a very interesting dynamic for me. That's something I hadn't experienced before. I've always been an outside cat. Now I'm an inside cat, uh, again, which is just a totally different feeling. I still wear my uniform and my body armor and all that because, you know, I have to stay connected to, uh, to my roots, as it were. But most of my day revolves around mentoring, strategic thinking, and planning and forecasting. And I have the communication support division, which handles all body camera installs, computer installs, anything to do with the radio system, land mobile radio, and all the data that's transmitted. I've got the communications unit, which are all of our call takers and dispatchers, our communication specialists, which that is, oh my, I never had any idea what a busy place that was. It's so different being on the other end of the radio, being the one calling for services and asking for help and resources and to be on this end of it and seeing the kind of work they do is so enlightening and amazing. And then I've got the fleet operations unit. They handle everything that rolls on our department, motorcycles, to cars, to you name it, the trucks, 
And that's been also very interesting learning that side of the business. So this has been a quite a unique opportunity. That's my most recent posting and I'm enjoying it. Again, I'm nested at the strategic level, lot, lot, just a lot of learning on a day-to-day basis. And then outside of that, um, still working with Arbinger, started a new venture, a new podcast, Changing Discourse. We are currently, after 12 episodes, in the top 50% of all podcasts. I attribute that to our amazing guests that we've had on. So far, we've just interviewed our friends, right? I mean, we haven't really made it past people that we've worked with or known. But it, it, it turns out, like, it's surreal because I have people on and we're talking and having these conversations. And I'm like, I can't believe I know these people. Like, like I, 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 I certainly feel very humbled to be able to have people like that on our show. We've had a, some high caliber guests and some more to come. That podcast has taken up, as you know, Jess, a lot of my time lately. And I've really enjoyed doing it. I've got a great partner, Tanner Brock who's really the brains behind the operation. He does all the behind the scenes work and keeps us marketed and, and in the right position and to succeed. And that's been great. On a personal note, you know, Shelly and I still plugging along. Connor's my stepson now, 14 and playing every sport, including year round baseball for a competitive team. I've got my son, Brandon, back stateside and he's living in North Carolina with his girlfriend and who I've not yet met. They met actually in Yemen. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, and what, what is he still with the same agency? What's he doing? Yeah, he's so not what. Well, so, he, I think when you and I talked, was he still in the Air Force? I can't remember if he was still in the Air Force when you and I talked, but he is actually works for a private contractor. Oh, now, okay. Doing the same thing he did in the Air Force, which I guess generically I would say is, is intelligence gathering. That'd be a generic way of understanding it. Yeah. Uh, he leads a team now. So, you know, he's doing that. And then, Chris, my older son just turned 30, which if you don't have a 30-year-old son or daughter, you don't know how that feels. But let me tell you, it's weird. And he still lives in Kansas City, so we get to see each other. We were out at dinner the other night. and He's my uh, – he's actually the, the – my son, Chris, actually is the one that titled our podcast. He came up with Changing oh, yeah. Discourse. Oh, yeah. We had all kinds of, of ideas and names, and it was going to initially center just around me. And Tanner was going to be totally behind the scenes. That was his idea. But my son – was over at the house and, you know, he just stopped by, grabbed a bite. We were talking. I told him, hey, we're going to do the podcast thing. We've got this domain secured. I've got some original music, you know, we're, and he's like, that sounds fun. He goes, what are you naming it? And I told him, well, we're thinking about this. He goes, mm, let me think on it. And so he's, he drives home. And, and when he, when he gets home, he calls me, he goes, I got it. It's this, it's changing discourse. And here's why. And here's what the graphics should look like. I'll send something over for you. This is, you know, this is why it looks like that. This is, you know, and, and I was just like, man, he's so creative. He just nailed it. Right. He's so creative. And, and this is my son. You'll remember, you'll remember Jess, he, he like, he'll go to a movie and if he doesn't like the way it ends, he'll go home and rewrite the screenplay. <laughs> and he's got these things bound up in his home office. He's rewritten. <laughs> awesome. And I, and I'm telling you, these are, I, I'm telling you, he could, if he could just find some connect like, you know, he needs to be discovered as a writer. He does this as a hobby, almost. He's really amazing. So anyway, that's the short story uh, or the longer version of well, the story where I'm at now. And another one, I mean, for people who, who maybe people who didn't catch episode number one, I think we'll go back and we'll talk about just some of the exciting, exciting days re- leading the high-risk search warrant team for SWAT and and uh, some of those stories. But but another one is, you know, with with all the negative press for policing and and ways that that some of the people have been dumped on and it's interesting to me how well received your TED talk has been you know or 200,000 views 
this is not like a, this is not a clickbait kind of title. You know what I mean? Like you're the importance of mindset and policing for anybody who hasn't seen it should definitely go check out Chip's Ted talk. But I got to tell you with, with all the press and all the media and stuff, how many times I have actually been telling people your stories, you know, as maybe a, as maybe another perspective to look at what's possible out there. And so what's interesting to me is the work and, you know, people are just shocked when I tell people about one of my mentorship youth who's dealing with these crazy gangbangers in third highest murder rate city in the country and refers to them as his clients. And like, that's the first signal that people know they're going to get a different story from me. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, I think it's a huge service that you guys and some of the other great people on Kansas City PD have been out with these stories about about uh, bringing this different mindset to policing years before the media took the tone that it took and and the situations that have happened because it gives so much credibility when you guys are talking in that space that you didn't just think it up on the spot. You know what I mean? No, no, definitely. Policing's been taking a beating here lately in in the media and certainly on social media. You know, I've just noticed just a lot of a lot of people with nefarious intentions on social media, just leveraging the, I guess what's happening there is a lot of the people on the fringe, they have amplification that they probably never had before. I mean, most of the people I talk to on a day-to-day basis, I tell you what, Jess, when I go, I have a lunch meeting or something, let's say, I think probably 50% of the time I don't even pay the bill because some anonymous person has picked up the tab and I greet and talk to people all the time on the street, even though I'm not on the street every day anymore in an enforcement capacity, who are so appreciative of the job that police do. You know, I would say that narrative doesn't get enough play. There's a lot of gratitude out there. And I would also say that on the flip side of that, the police do have things that we need to improve. And we've, we've known that for a long time. As a matter of fact, we've been get engaged in reimagining policing my whole career. It's just that as a bureaucracy goes, it doesn't happen at the speed of life, right? Like you want it to happen a little faster. You want us to come up with these big innovations and, and make these, these, these big inroads into a new way of serving our communities. But it's a bureaucracy too, right? And so it's, you know, we don't make money. I mean, we're, we're, we're taxpayer funded. So things tend to move a little bit slower than you like, certainly slower than I'd like. But to think there hasn't been progress made in policing, Oh my. I mean, you would think that some of the folks that are calling for, you know, defunding the police and some of these other movements, you would think they just haven't been paying any attention. Um, I, yeah, I personally think they're crazy. Like (laughs) I, you know, but, but I also am warped, right? You got to think like the kind of leadership consulting work that I do, I have got to spend time with some of the best law enforcement has to offer because those are the people who are interested in becoming better leaders and practicing humility, right? And a child rescue, right? This 10 years we've been running this charity I get the kind of cops who are out there saving saving kids from predators. You know, the guy we were talking about just before the show who's putting in his 20, right? You know, he he has been fighting for kids who are being abused by predators in, inside the NYPD and spreading the gospel in NYPD and getting all sorts of other cops to care more and pioneering things with Homeland Security task forces. And he actually got, uh, he actually got an offer to join the White House team on against human trafficking now. And, and, you know, my best friend, total like punk skater kid, right? Now he's, he's a cop in Canada where we grew up, actually got asked to be on the SWAT team recently. And so I get that I'm biased because I'm dealing with the best law enforcement has to offer and 
you know, one of my biggest mentors is a guy who spent 22 years in the bureau, lives in the town that I live in, right? But I know there's things that need to be improved. I mean, it's no different than the military. There's there's guys who join the military because they feel the patriotism and they want to preserve the way of life and they want my family to be able to have the way of life I keep having. And there's other guys who want to carry a gun. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, 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 without a doubt. And I would also say that that policing in my experience, and this is just my experience, it's populated by a lot of very well-intentioned, honorable men and women. The system itself doesn't always let them serve in the way they want to serve. The system itself certainly does need to be reimagined. I mean, you think about just take this one thing. After we've totally defunded mental health in this country over the last few decades, we've now sent armed first responders to deal with mental health, people in mental health crisis. I mean, that's the wrong tool for the job. I mean, you're, you're setting these police officers up for failure, and we've been talking about it forever. I don't know any police officer that wouldn't gladly hand that off or, 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 or sending them to deal with homeless people. You said, well, we're going to deal with homeless people. We've got a homeless encampment. We're going to send the police. Again, not an appropriate resource to send to deal with that problem. Now, people say, well, yeah, but there's a potential for violence. Well, there's a potential for violence in almost any challenging situation, but we don't send the police on all of those. We have to screen them in some way and determine what the best resource is. So now I, I don't, I, I actually, and I think you're this way too, I'm open to alternative perspective. I like the challenging narrative of defund the police. Okay, great, let's talk about that. Like if you're serious about it and you're thoughtful about it and you've thought this through and you know what you mean by defund, we're not playing a language game, you know, as Wittgenstein would say, what do you really mean by defund? Let's have that talk. I would love to have that talk, right? Because at the end of the day, in a constitutional republic, people have a right to have a voice in how they're policed. And I love that about this country. You know, I live by that. But if you're just trying to stir people up, right? If you're just trolling, if you're just trying to anger people, if that's your goal, your goal really isn't progress. Your goal isn't to make things better. You know, we've got to be able to recognize that too. And, and I, th I think that I don't think all the people that are calling for a reimagining of policing are crazy in any way. I think, I think some of them have some really great ideas. I talked to some young students. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I want to I clarify my statement. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, think sure. the, I think the people who think we don't need police, like uh -huh. we don't need a policing function, mm -hmm. right? Because police are so bad. I'm like, friends, I, I've been to a number of developing world <laughs> countries. Yeah. Uh, like, I'm not sure you've got a real solid grasp on reality. Yeah. With, with like, do you know what I mean? Like, um, oh, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I, I too have been to those, I too have been to those countries and, and you, you know, you know, I've, I've traveled some of the same roads you have and you're right. I mean, in, in a, in a Republic, like number one, to say defund the police, you're just saying defund the, the, the government's policing agencies, because it, you saw what happened in Chaz up in Seattle when they, when they took over that, however many block area in Seattle, they kind of liberated it from, from the city of Seattle. What happened within days? They established their own police. And what did they do? They were beating people up. I mean, <laughs> because they're not trained <laughs> to, to deal with conflict, right? So they're going to beat people up. I mean, that's going to happen. It's like a Lord of the Flies situation. You're, you're not going to be able to not have police. It's either going to be something that is a function of government and it's regulated and it's and it's 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 measured and people are recruited and trained or it's just going to be ad hoc and you're going to get what you get and it's generally going to be the biggest strongest people on the block who may not be the most nuanced and and so to your point you're going to have some form of policing oh, yeah well here's the thing like you so open to rethinking policing you know having had to teach leadership training to a lot of cops and some of the, some of the times I was with you right 
there there's yeah. a bunch of folks who you know there's some there's some job security things where people people can kind of go like ah, i'm safe i can do what i feel like you know what I mean? and, and there's some of that that i wouldn't mind if there was like a little more like you know in corporate america if, if you stop doing if you get bad enough customer service you don't have a job anymore right you know and right. and there's some departments where some of that stuff slides that maybe shouldn't slide or what okay right this yeah, is no different than this is no different than child protection services and and you know i i worked i shouldn't name names i've done a lot of work with the child protection services of one of the largest cities in this country mm -hmm. and the most well-intentioned humans being crushed by bureaucracy mm -hmm. do you know what i mean and in such needful needful situations being told that's not like sorry that you didn't fill out the right form and sorry we don't our department isn't allowed to help you with that and nobody nobody knows who who can and you know like people who are i specifically was hired by innovation teams to come with consulting and just the like the protection of my fiefdom over the helping of that child mm -hmm. you know like yeah. people who people who will choose uh, a decision that keeps them in charge ahead of the most effective thing for the kid is, is really hard for me to respect you know yeah. and i think there's a lot of self-deception and rationalization and and things involved and so as a person who self-deceives and rationalizes, I shouldn't be too hard on them. Okay. <laughs> well, the, sta the stakes are the stakes are quite a bit higher when kids are suffering. I, I would just say again, like any other bureaucracy, that's the struggle, isn't it? Right. We need to humanize it, and we need to empower people to act with a little bit more autonomy and compassion. And I, I think it's it's tough. It's it, there's a balancing act there, and I mean it requires really dynamic leadership. And that, as you know, there's a dearth of those, what, what Collins might call level five leaders out there, certainly in the public space. I mean, you know, in your world, at least in, in, in the corporate space of your world, not the, not the volunteer or the charity or nonprofit space, because you have so many spaces you're, you're in, you know, money talks. I mean, they're, they're going to pay these CEOs a lot of money. You're not going to see a police chief make that kind of money. And you're not going to attract the, those type of innovative leaders it's it's really difficult, and we've got now. Now we've got some amazing police chiefs out there that are, you know, they start with heart. And I mean, they're doing some amazing things without a doubt. But in the aggregate, you know, we do have a leadership vacuum in law enforcement. That's what prompted me to promote aggressively after Ferguson, Missouri happened. I mean, I just think we need we need to understand that this challenge it's it's not just a policing challenge; it's a community challenge. We're going to have to come together. We need help. You know, violent crime isn't going to be reduced by the police alone. It just can't happen that way. Uh, it's certainly not in a free society, but, but I mean, I, I, you know, not to get too far off, off point. I think there are some good people that are trapped in the confines of those bureaucracies. And, and I would love to be able to liberate them. We've seen what's possible and we know what's yeah. possible. And I feel like I've been dumping on government agencies here and some of the most inspiring people I've worked with in the last decade specifically mm -hmm. have been in DOD and federal government and local government and like huge, huge examples to me personally. And, and just like high quality humans, you know, we, we've both had Chris, Chris Fussell on our, Chris Fussell on our oh, podcast, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, guy gets to the top of the top into SEAL team six, you know what yeah. I mean? And, yeah. and, and is now bringing those lessons to corporate America and others and, and Stanley McChrystal and him, I can't tell you how many like former fortune 500 CEOs or billionaires or people that have been on this show mm -hmm. have brought up what he and McChrystal have done post yeah. post DOD, you know? Oh, yeah. And so there are such great people in there that are making big differences. And it would be great if, if we could figure out ways to give them more support and more airtime and, 
uh, so they can get done more of it. I, no, I, I, think I agree. I'm, I agree. I think I kind think, of where I, go ahead. No, you. No, go well, I'm just saying. I think it's interesting. You know, Chris is a personal friend, Chris Fussell, and you know, just the the transition. Number one, he was super bright before he was in the Navy SEAL teams, right? I mean, this was a guy who was already forward thinking. That's part of what attracted McChrystal to him, right? When McChrystal, if you listen to our our interview with him, he he kind of slyly tried to tank the interview with McChrystal, right? He wasn't super interested in being an aide de camp. He wanted to be out there on the on the sharp end, as it were. But but his it was his authenticity and his curiosity that really got McChrystal's attention. It's so interesting to see him be able to transition from the military, which is the ultimate in bureaucracy, to the corporate space and be so darn successful. And, and the same can be said for General McChrystal, although at that level, right? I mean, when you've got a thinker at, at that level, it almost, you probably see many, many generals that end up in the corporate space doing something or serving on a board somewhere. But for Chris, he's a great example of of just that adaptability that makes special operators so so prized. Everybody thinks special forces, you know, so it's all about the the, the grit. It's all about the, the physical, mental toughness. But you know, it's really about the adaptability, the ability to, to adapt. And I think you that's know, what uh, what comes out. Well, yeah. and the guys that I've got the most respect for from that community are masters at understanding humans and and thinking about others in a human to human kind of way. You know, I think. I actually think you were with me the very first the very first time I was going down to go with the training for Naval Special Warfare in Coronado. You were on that trip with me, mm-hmm. right? And I think about your example, and we should tell some we should tell some fun SWAT stories because <laughs> the reason those guys wanted to meet you. Oh, by the way, if you if you get a chance, did you did you meet Amy's mentor that 06 Steve Wazotsky on that trip? Rob Rob's friend. Oh. I feel like when we went to dinner that Steve might've been there, but if I met him, it was only, it was only that once. Okay. I just had him on the show. He just retired. So f- finished up and came, went and became the head of security for all of JP Morgan oh, wow. globally. And he just retired from that. And I got him to come on the show. Anyways, that's what, that's one that you specifically, I think would really appreciate because the guy's just so dialed into humans. But, but I think about, you know, one of the individuals that you and I were training that day, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. who later came with me and we went and trained the Nigerian Special Operations Command. And you let us take your stories over there. Yeah. And we've got me and a 25-year Navy SEAL teaching Nigerian mm-hmm. Special Ops people cop stories from Kansas City. And yeah. it's because, my friend, you you have some pretty great stories about having that human to human, seeing things through other people's eyes considering what this is like for them that has, will have a lifelong effect on me. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Well, and you should know that that mutual friend of ours is also a rabid Raiders fan. And since the Raiders pretty much single-handedly ruined our perfect season here in Kansas city for football, I don't hear the end of that. We're, we're, <laughs> we're on a running text thread and, and he's always finding these unique quips. He's super witty, as you know. Yeah. He's even more witty he, on he the text. He could have been a stand-up comic, seriously. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, he's funny. He's funny all day. And he's probably got more businesses going than you. I think he's up to like five right now, ventures that are spinning. No. Yeah, he's doing crazy. Advising but, but, NBA teams and all that. Yeah. Right? Well, we got to be careful. We, 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 we talk too much. People are going to know what we're talking about. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, for sure. He's well, listen, let, let's, let's, tell, let's tell a fun SWAT story. I've, I've got plenty of years that I could bring up. But but what, why don't why don't you pick one and then I'll pick. Gosh, one. man, I people are always asking me to do that. I mean, there's so many stories. I mean, the funnest part for me was really watching the team, like when I first came on board, what they were 
as a team, what they were as a unit, what their mindset and their outlook was, how they framed their experiences on the job. Watching that transition and totally shift was the funnest thing for me. I mean, I just enjoyed that so much. I mean, I, I can remember, I can remember so many times where you, you, you mentioned the client thing, right? Like, you know, why did we call the people that we dealt with clients? You know, well, when I got there, we were calling them scumbags and, you know, you know, all some other things that are unprintable, you know, that was kind of how we were thinking about them. Well, if, if we're thinking about them that way, we're labeling them, that's going to absolutely leak out into how we treat them, right? Everything that you're doing, that is a manifestation of how you're thinking, how you're framing experiences, how you're thinking about people. So the coolest part for me was just watching them change. And, you know, I, we, we, we chronicled this story and, and I might've told it. I don't know if I told it or not. I can't remember, but we chronicled this story in the first chapter of the outward mindset. And, and the reason I love the story so much is, is, is my point man that was involved in this story was some of the, he was one of the hardest guys you ever want to meet. And he was a black and white thinker. He was like, look, there's good guys, there's bad guys. And, you know, you do dumb things, you win dumb prizes. Right. And, and, and that's just kind of how he thought about it. You know, he didn't think about any, he had no nuance. At least he didn't appear to have any nuance. And I had tried and tried and tried to convince him that, look, man, the world is full of gray and were it for a couple left turns, you or I could be in the position of the person we're kicking in on. I mean, we didn't have easy childhoods. We just had some good mentors and we went in the army and, and they helped straighten us out a little bit and get our, our minds right. If it weren't for that, we might be on the receiving end of what we're doing, this police work that we're doing. And I remember just working with him and working with him and he just really, you know, he was really stubborn about it. And finally, I just surrendered to this idea that I had to just model for him the mindset I was trying to inculcate. And I just had to start looking at him and seeing him as a person and, and valuing his experiences. And I did. And we built this great relationship. And then as we talked about in the first chapter of the book, we, we, we served a search warrant on a couple of homicide suspects and ended up running into a house full of children and mothers. And it was, I mean, the place was total chaos. And we're trying to take these guys into custody. And I remember having a three-year-old wrapped around my leg. I'm in full SWAT gear trying to step through these transition areas while I've got a kid wrapped around my leg. You know that game that kids play where they hold on to your leg while you walk? It's like that, only I'm fully armed and I'm trying to peel them off and get him behind me and at the same time cover my my sight line, my area of responsibility, my hot spot. And, and tell me again, was it two guys that you knew were going to be there or one guy? No, there were two. There were two suspects that were wanted for questioning a homicide and we we had intel that they were there. We had surveillance on the house, but what their surveillance had somehow missed was that there were 20 people in there. You know, the people weren't coming out. It was kind of like a, almost like an ad hoc daycare, if you will, uh, non-licensed type situation. But they, they were family members, but there were that many kids there with, with these parents. And uh, we didn't have any kids' toys out front or anything that would have indicated this. It was just a, a big surprise. And, you know, we're going through and, and clearing and, and taking the kids outside with the, with the trailing team and doing all these different things. We get these guys in custody and one of them almost got shot by the point man, right? By my guy. He almost had to shoot one of them because he was armed and, and not surrendering. And we get everything calmed down as far as the tactical piece is over, but things are far from calm because the, 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 the women are screaming at each other. They're trying to corral the kids. The kids are screaming and it's just total chaos. And I can't talk to them. I can't explain to them why we're here. I, I have a spiel that I would give where I would explain to them, hey, you know, this is why we're here. Everybody's safe now. This is what we're going to do next. I couldn't even get that out. And I remember my point man had disappeared and, and I start looking around for him. 
And we all have jobs, like after the search warrant, the tactical piece is over, we all switch into a secondary job that where we exploit the site, right? We, we search the we search the house and so forth and so on, collect evidence. Well, I can't find him. I go into the kitchen and he's got his back to me. He's at the sink. And I'm like, what is he doing? Like he's already started searching and we haven't even done the video recording. Like, you know, doesn't, that's totally out of sync, out of sequence. And so I go, I go around to the left side of him and I look and he's got these baby bottles out and he's making baby bottles. He's mixing up formula. He's found some formula and he's mixing up these baby bottles. And he's got three of these bottles. He's working on a fourth. And he's still in full kit. He hasn't even dressed down yet. And I look at him and he looks at me. I'll never forget the smirk on his face, this kind of kind of smile that he had. And he shrugs his shoulders like, yeah, what are you going to do? And he takes the bottles out. He starts handing them out to these mothers of these crying kids. And they start feeding the kids. Of course, everything changes immediately. The whole, I mean, everything changes. Just that one act of selfless humanity. From, from one of the hardest, stubborn, most stubborn guys in the team who just couldn't see this. And it was like, the coolest part about that story is it took that experience for him to, that that became a watershed moment for him. He, he could like see, he has a dad, he understood in that moment, man, you know what? At some level of analysis, we're the same, these people in us, we're the same. We have things that we deeply care about and people that we deeply love. And at that level, we can connect as humans. And, you know, that's common ground for us. And that's the that's such a great story because it, it just changed his whole experience. And if you were to talk to him now, he's still changed. I mean, his, his life, his personal life has changed dramatically. But, I mean, he, he's still a changed person. That experience and all of our work together, it's just a great story because, I mean, we, we were in a lot of hairy situations together. We were in a lot of really tense situations. But the coolest part was to watch how these men, they were all men at the time, how they interacted with people once the cuffs were on, once things were secure, how they how they just regarded them. It was such an amazing thing to experience. And can you explain to people the difference between when what what triggered that it was the high risk search warrant team that went out versus others? Yeah, so we we developed a pretty good pre-screening uh, mechanism. When I'd first gotten there, we were serving some high risk warrants that we probably are some warrants, I should say, that we probably shouldn't have been serving. Like these were warrants that probably could have been done by patrol officers or detectives. Just everyone had gotten to a habit of, if you got a warrant, call SWAT. And it was just almost automatic. And of course, SWAT likes to work, right? So we say yes to everything. And when I got there and we started really thinking critically about this and challenging some of our assumptions about these warrants, we pared down the number that we deployed on dramatically. Now we still had a lot, but we were still upwards of 400 a year, 350 to 400 a year when I left. But, but we really, we, I think it was 800 a year before I got there to give you an idea. So let's say we cut it by 50. The, the, the screening mechanism that we would use, we would look at like, okay, we had a little matrix and we'd say, okay, if there's people that are armed, if there's been violence there in the past, things like body armor, gang activity, all of those things, we would check those boxes. And if, if, if the detectives could check those boxes and say, yes, these things are likely present, there's a heightened sense of jeopardy, as we say in the business, that would then uh, trigger the, no pun intended, the SWAT team deployment. And so high risk is, it's not like, hey, I've got a 16-year-old kid selling marijuana out of grandma's house. That's not a SWAT team deployment. Now, I will tell you, some agencies would probably deploy a SWAT team on things that I would never, ever think about deploying a SWAT team on. I've, I've counseled, I worked in litigation with agencies who have done things like put a SWAT team to, to do a cockfighting raid where a bunch of old men are sitting around betting on chickens fighting. 
you know, now, now look in a certain context, there might be a, uh, you know, again, I don't know all the variables. I knew the variables on that case. And I'm going to tell you, didn't need a SWAT team. And, you know, we don't need a SWAT team to go in and seize illegal slot machines generally. But some people, again, you give them, you give them a capability and they're going to want to exercise it. So I, yeah, well, there's been plenty of books written about the militarization of police, right? I always said, it's not what you wear. It's not the gear that you use. You could justify that gear. You could totally rationalize why we need that capability. It's really how you are with people. You know, nobody ever complained about the fact we were dressed in blacks or were in heavy vests. As long as we were regarding them as people and we were communicating with them, it didn't seem to matter to them. Yeah. Give me a break. If you have a, if you have a cop who is dressed in regular patrol gear and treats you like dirt, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like the fact that he didn't, the fact that he didn't have on full body armor and stuff doesn't make you all of a sudden enjoy that experience, right? No, it's not. Again, people will look past what you wear. It's how you carry yourself. It's how, honestly, Jess, and you know this, it's how they feel regarded by you. I mean, if you're looking at someone and you're looking through them, you're just seeing them as a means to an end. They're going to pick up on that. They're going to feel it. And they're going to respond viscerally to that. They, don't, they might not even know why they're so upset. They're just wired for it. But if you're looking at them and seeing them as a person and they feel valued by you at that level, it changes the entire interaction. But it's such a, it's like fishing without a bobber. It's such a nuanced thing. It's so hard to communicate to people the difference. Like they say, well, I said, yes, sir. Well, it wasn't what you said, right? (laughs) It was how you, right. It was how you were showing up in that interaction. But isn't that the same in the department, the way that the junior officer says it to the senior officer says, yes, sir. It's the same thing. It's just even even like, and I'll give you a, I'll give you a softball so we can plug, so we can plug you in Jack's book. Okay. But on the show this week, we had a guy talking about one of the best things they ever learned from a FBI hostage negotiator. And he said, as soon as respect has left the conversation, it's like the oxygen has left the conversation. Oh, yeah. The, the, the whole thing goes up in smoke and you're going to choke on the smoke. And, and in their cases, it often goes violent. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, so that, yeah. with that lead in, please tell us about your book. Oh, with Jack and I's book. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That thing has aged well, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so it's funny, but before I do, I will tell you that metaphor of, of air. I, I actually had a conversation with a senior leader who I basically used that metaphor. I said, listen, I mean this in the most gentle way possible, but when you walk in the room, the air goes out. I said, that's why people aren't telling you what's wrong. They're not being candid with you about what's wrong because quite frankly, they're just afraid of you, you know, and, and that's just not a good motivator at the end of the day that, that, that causes people to think about self-preservation, not us preservation as our buddy Chad Ford would say. Hey, by the way, he's coming on the show tomorrow. Oh my. So he was just on our show last week. So yeah, I, I, the, I don't think the episode's aired yet. I think it might be airing. Oh, I think we've got Dave DeRocher airing tomorrow. I know, you know, Dave from the other side Academy. Oh, really? Oh, if you don't, yeah. If you haven't been, if you don't know Dave, you definitely got to know. No, 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 no. I love the other side Academy so much. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's awesome. Well, when you hear his interview with us, I think he did a great job. You know, he's just such a, such a genuine person. He's awesome. But then Chad was on the following. We recorded Chad the following. So yeah. Okay. So this is so Arbinger week on the show. (laughs) <laughs> yesterday we had bob morley come on yeah oh that's great yeah. man it's great makes it, it's such a small world uh, it's that whole seven degrees of separation thing but i think with us like two degrees yeah it, it just seems like yeah everybody's connected in so many ways but okay so, but, anyway that, meta, that metaphor the, yeah yeah tell everybody the name of your book okay the, the name of the book and it's by the way the book it's been 11 years now it'll be 11 years in june so we release the book it's unleashing the power of unconditional respect transforming law enforcement and police training and that was written 
by Jack Colwell and myself. I like to say Jack wrote it and I drew the pictures. Like that's how I like <laughs> to tell people that that went down. But that book, you know, we were talking about that book today in a little strategy meeting that we had for another initiative we're working on, Jack and I. And it, we're really, well, first of all, you know this from your writing, as soon as you put it down on the page and it's published, it starts, it starts getting stale. It starts aging. I mean, you know, new information comes in, you learn new things, you become a tad bit wiser. Hopefully if you're living in the right direction, you become wiser. And then what you wrote is, you know, like, darn it, man, I wish I would have said this. And I feel that way about that book. I really do. I feel that way about that book, but it's also aged pretty well. We, we were pretty prescient in the book about some of the directions we were heading in. I don't take pleasure in that because I don't like some of the places that we've gotten, but we really, we really enjoyed writing that book. That really, it really came about from just, you know, our collaboration with Arbinger and our thought about, you know, what makes police safe physically and safe psychologically and effective interpersonally. Is there, is there a, a nexus there? And we came up with this concept again of unconditional respect. Of course, Carl uh, Rogers, I think it was, a uh, clinical psychologist, talked about unconditional positive regard. We've got our friend Gus Lee that, that talked about unconditional respect, wrote a book called Courage, where he talks about that concept briefly. Oh, I don't in there. know that one. I got to get that one. Yeah, great guy. A great guy. I want to have Gus on, on the podcast too. So, I mean, all of this was kind of an amalgamation of things that we were learning with our philosophies and our experiences, which together are 60 years in law enforcement, peppered in and made relative to that context. I really enjoyed doing it. Good project. Well, I, I'm so Chad Ford changed my life. Mitch mm. Warner changed my life. Mm -hmm. Mitch, I was telling Bob on the show yesterday, Mitch Warner is the first mentor I ever had that was younger than me. You know, <laughs> that guy, that guy is so into like, do what's right. Let the consequences follow. You know, oh, yeah. he just, yeah. he just, he doesn't have to control everything. He just has nope. to do what he thinks he should do. But did you hear him on? He, so he came on and we did a Christmas truce episode. We dropped Yeah, it Yeah, on. I was perusing that one. Dude, I mean, he, we, we could go on and on about Mitch, but, but I'm telling you, and for, for the listeners, Mitch is Mitch, man. Mitch is like my wife, Shelly. What you see is what you get. He doesn't have a public persona. He doesn't have a public face. He is always the same. He is authentic in, in his entire being. And, and he's just so fascinating to be around him again. He's obviously younger than me and I still consider him a mentor. I just like, feel like, wow, you know, I, I could listen to him all day. Yeah, I, I there's again that guy just you know lifelong respect. The guy ch yep. changed direction for me. How often are you guys coming out with episodes? We're doing it. We, we, so episodes drop every Thursday, once a week. We're we, we're on schedule once a week, and we're trying not to record too far in advance. You know, so if something pops up, we can take it on. I think we're about two weeks in advance right now. We'd recorded a couple and had them in the can for the holidays, but yeah, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty daunting schedule. But we, you know, it's almost like you. You spend time with a guest and then you start thinking about the next week's podcast, right? I mean, you know this, 550. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. Here I am at episode 12. So I'm going <laughs> to babe in the woods. Well, I uh, I think because of the quality of guests you're putting on, I, you know, I, I really, there's a lot of shows out there. There's a lot of new shows out there, but I'm not sure that people are putting quite the effort that you are into the quality of guests. So I'm not sure that, anyways, I've, I have strong feelings about your show because of, a, who you, you know, the small choices you've made repeatedly over life to become who you are and who you've choose to put on the show. I think that's a great combo. Well, yeah, I'm clearly, okay. Jess, I am clearly the weakest link in this whole chain. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to the show, trust me, this show has more potential than, than me. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I tell Tanner that all the time. I'm like this, you know, Tanner, you've chosen, you've, you've chosen very, you were very charitable in choosing me. 
to be involved in this. But I mean, well, I'm telling I, you, the, I liked the episode with his boss, his old boss, you know, and oh, yeah. and patching up relationships with his brother and their family business had fallen apart. I think that's everybody should listen to that episode. I, just the willingness to consider, am I the one who's wrong here? You know, actually, I'm going to pause because I know we're running close on time. This makes me think of one of my favorite stories. Can you tell the ma'am, are you a hugger story? <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> yeah, that was, we, we had a, a car chase, quite a, quite a robust car chase. Actually, I can't believe you brought that up. I mean, th- I haven't told this story in years. I can't believe you remembered it. Well, it's because it's because that was a situation where you asked yourself honestly, yeah, yeah, did I do something wrong here? Okay, yeah. Well, it's funny because and I also I also always you know I, I I tell people all the time, hey, look, don't hug people. You don't have to hug people. What are you, what are you saying, Chip? We got to hug everybody. I'm not saying you got to hug people. No, I'm not talking about hug. It was just so funny how this story turns out because again, let the context inform you, right? So big car chase, huge wreck, big mess at the end of it. And we've got some juvenile suspects in custody with crack cocaine and guns next to this wrecked car with crime scene tape up. And the neighborhood starts coming out to see what's happening. And wasn't it like they were going so fast they missed a turn and ended up in the field or something? Like what? They ended how, up how, did a, they, how did they end up getting stopped? Yeah. So so basically, as they're they're going to try to make a ninety degree turn, but they're going like eighty five miles an hour, and they end up flipping into this Jeez. vacant lot. So a house there used to be a house there. Now it's a vacant lot between other houses. So okay. you know, by, by by the grace of God, it was a miracle, right, that they landed in this vacant lot versus hitting a house and. So that part ended well, and they weren't hurt. Young kids, you know, they, they tend to be pliable. They weren't hurt, so they were handcuffed. We had crack cocaine. We had guns out there, and we've got this crowd of people forming. We've got this one elderly lady who is just giving us the business from the other side of the crime scene tape. She is yelling and screaming, and she's got the crowd pretty riled up. And, I mean, she had to be – she was definitely a civil rights-era veteran. I mean, she had to be at least that elderly, right? And she, so she'd seen her, I'm saying that to say she'd seen her share of police misconduct in her day. And she was sure that she had uncovered some more evidenced by the fact we had these kids in handcuffs. That's all she needed to know. And she was going to town and the the police officers that she's screaming at these officers guarding the crime scene. And I started kind of empathizing with them. I thought, oh man, this is, you know, they're they're having a rough time of it. And of course she's elderly. So they're, you're not going to do anything. You're just going to listen to that. And, you know, you're not going to address her negatively, but I go out there and I stepped on the other side of the crime scene tape. And I thought, is the question that you, that you posed, right? I'm thinking to myself, okay, look, certainly this lady's upset. She's angry. She's got a grievance, but, but is there something here that we could be explaining better? Can we take another step toward, toward meeting her where she's at? And so, you know, I, I happen to be in the right mindset that day. I go out and I, you know, man, what's going on? She starts screaming at me, Hey, you know, you're abusing these children. You know, they're in handcuffs. They're embarrassed in front of the neighborhood. You're driving too fast through our neighborhood. She she said, yeah, you guys are driving like maniacs, you know. And, you know, and my my natural gut instinct was to defend the police, right? Well, you don't understand what we're doing out here, right? I'm like, we're we're, we're the line between good and evil. You know, I wanted to go into the whole diatribe. A lot of hyperbole in my my speeches back in in those days. But I said, you know what, I call that lawyering up. Lawyering up? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Build a case in your head? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so instead, instead, in a moment of outwardness, I said, ma'am, I said, you're right. I said, we could be more careful 
driving through the neighborhood, right? We could pay more attention. You're right. There are children around here and there, there might be things more important than always catching the people that are running from us. I said, it, 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 you're right. We absolutely could. That's a really good point you're making there. I said, can I invite you, just you, inside the crime scene tape? I'd like to show you something. And so I bring her in. And, and did you hug her before this or after no, this? No, 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 no. Don't spoil yeah. it. Yeah, we're at the yeah. denim wall here. It's the denim Dang wall. It. I'm yeah, sorry. We're not there yet. No, it's okay. So I, I, I bring her in and I show her the gun and I show her the crack cocaine. And I walked around the car and I said, you know, this is what's happening. And these young men were affiliating with some gang members and they were selling some drugs. And, and we are hoping that we're wrong, but we think that one of these guns was used in the shooting last evening. And, you know, we're trying to sort all that out. We were certainly. And so, trying, had somebody been killed in that shooting? Uh, I don't remember if they died or it was just, it was multiple. It was multiple people shot. I can't remember if they died or if anyone died or not. I just can't okay. remember right now. But it was a, a serious situation. And so I explained this to her. Well, what I didn't know was these are her grandkids, two of them, sitting here what? handcuffed. Yeah. Right. So she has a vested interest. And she just kind of looks down at them. And she's kind of shaking her head and looking at me, looking at them. And, and this was this look on her face, right? Like this, this crestfallen look. Now, of course, now in retrospect, I understand these were her, her relation, but I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure it out, right? Like she had gone from irate to totally just demoralized. And so in my mind, and here I am, I'm the guy that says never hug anybody. In my mind, I'm thinking, this lady needs a hug. Like if I, if she <laughs> were somebody I cared deeply for, what would I do? And so like we're kind of closing out this conversation and I just spontaneously said, ma'am, are you a hugger? Like, is that is that on the menu? Like, is that, you know, in a situation where you've bonded with somebody, can you see yourself hugging them? And she's just kind of staring at me and I, she kind of, kind of acquiesced non-verbally and I came in both hands around her and, and I hugged her and I said, ma'am, I'm so sorry that we have caused you any upset. And she hugs me back and she pats me on the back and she says, you're just doing your job, baby. You're just doing your job. And we had this moment. And so she, you know, now all the officers are looking at me like I'm crazy, right? <laughs> and, you know, but she goes back outside of the crime scene tape and starts telling the rest of the neighbors they're just doing their job, you know, cut them a break. And she kind of became a supporter. So that's the hug story. I wish I could say that's the only time I ever hugged people, but it's not, you know, I really, I think after that day, I became a hugger and I'm not, you know, pre-COVID, of course. <laughs> uh, COVID, COVID has really put a, a cramp in my style, but but I I think cramp on some, your hugging game. It has, but sometimes hugging's just the right thing to do. I mean, I I don't know how to explain. You'll know I when. Think that's what, I think that's what this our, this episode might get titled. Sometimes hugging <laughs> is just the right thing to do. I can't believe you. Brought At least that we up. should make T-shirts. At least yeah. we need T-shirts. Sometimes all we need is a hug. I, I'm telling you, a, a hug is a real good. I mean, you got to be careful with it, and then the setting, the context is important. But, but there's some kind of connection you just feel with people. You know, again, I'm not, I'm not going to write a book on hugging. I'm just saying that you have to, you have to start with heart. You have to go with your gut in certain situations. And, and it's got to be, you know, you got to know your audience. But I really felt like I've used a hug. So far, I'm batting a thousand with hugs. I've not had a hug backfire. So just take that for what it's worth. <laughs> But, you know, I think about Mitch's dad and Terry Warner and like mm -hmm. the unequal change in my life of reading Bonds That Make Us Free and, and having him as a mentor. And, yeah. and this idea of like just being alive in the moment of leave the shoulds at the door and, and be alive at the moment to, mm -hmm. you know, when you're when you're dialed in tune in this human to human way, like what what are you 
actually what do you actually feel like you should do right now when you're deep down honest with yourself yeah you know get to that yeah. place of radical self-honesty and kind of you know I, I think about i have these clients who you know large government organizations consulting clients and stuff and things go crazy and they're thinking do i quit do i should i stay these kind of things i remember one specific conversation guy 1800 staff and really upset about how senior leadership had done some stuff and decide if you should stay or go and and my advice to him was like, well, I'll, I'll tell you for me, if I am, if I'm real hot under the collar and I'm not thinking about these other people as a human, as full, as a full human being, I should probably not trust whatever I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And, and if I really am in that centered place, I should probably do what I feel like I should do instead of what's logical. Wow. And that's, that's my, you know, that's served me well. And I never told him what I thought he should do, but, but I think sure. that brought him some comfort in his decision. Well, and, and people come to you for advice like that. They're not really wanting you to tell them what to do. They really want just to be heard. They like, they, in their mind, they have a sense, right? So they're either looking for some type of affirmation from you or, you know, they're wanting to abdicate their, their agency in some way, or they just sometimes need to just have a sounding board where they can articulate the problem out in a way that they can more effectively contend with it. And you're really good. You're a really good listener. You know, you mentioned Terry, Terry Warner said something to me one time. I'm going to mangle this by the way, but it goes back to your point about, about the possibility, considering the possibility that I might not be right, which is a hell of a thing to consider. But Terry said something to me, we were talking about this, this, this walking this line between assertiveness and, and, and self-doubting, right? And he said, listen, I, wish, I really wish I could whip this off better, but, but he said, basically, if you are unwilling to consider where you might be wrong, then your search for the truth will always be inauthentic, right? Now, you know, he said that better, but my point is that stuck with me so much. It's like, how often am I wrong? And, you know, I've adopted this philosophy Instead of trying to be right, which often devolves into defending some ideology, I've just started assuming I'm wrong and have been striving to be less wrong, which is a totally different mentality. It creates curiosity, right? It creates humility. It fosters all of that. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that, that's such a powerful statement. I feel like that could, you know, that needs to be like a quote on my wall. You know, what's funny is you hear Terry Warner in yours. I hear you in my ears. I hear, you know, big tough chip youth saying, get off your dang headphones when you're at the, when you're at the grocery store clerk and be respectful and engage this person like a human being. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I think about, you know, like I said, we've got staff who are kind of taking over my consulting firm more and, and stuff like mm -hmm. this, some, some leaders who've, who've been doing more of that. And I'm spending much more of my time with our investment business. And I think about like, you you're kind of a big personality and and people want to hang out with you and people want to be near you and and this kind of stuff and i have seen you over and over when nobody is watching pay attention to somebody that somebody else might consider the little people mm -hmm. and it makes me think about my real estate business like you can bet that we are going to treat our investors like gold white glove do you know what i mean right yeah. but what about the plumber that is going to be a service provider to the management company who works for me right are we yeah. are we thinking through like what are we like as a client for people for people who you can probably get away with not treating that well and they'll still come back and help you out right yeah but what about next time when we have an emergency on a weekend and they're, you know how how quick are they going to be responding it probably yeah. has a lot to do with the level of respect at the times when we didn't have to, you know what I mean? I, th I think about, well, for instance, I remember one time you're at my house, we, we had some steak nachos or something, right? <laughs> oh yeah, I remember. And, and just the way that you, just the way that you fully engage people, like 
you know, my wife and my mother-in-law had a crush on you after that. And you got brought up like many times in our home after that. Okay. Right. Oh, and, Those were some and, good state nachos. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And it's interesting to me, just the ruts and the social norms and, and how many of the people that can be perceived as not being able to do anything for us that we don't have habits and other people don't have the habits. And so they just don't, they don't get engaged with that level of respect. And I think that's why I appreciate hanging out with people like you, because it's that wake up call for me of like, who am I blindly walking past like the furniture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you're always striving for balance, right? I, I wasn't always that way. You know, that, that's just part of my evolution, part of my journey. Just recognizing that every person I meet has something to teach me regardless of their social status, right? Regardless of their education level, their position in life. I, if, I, if I can humble myself in that way, then everybody becomes a source of knowledge for me. Everybody becomes somebody that can help improve me so that I can better serve the world. I will say though, that there's these commercials that are on now during football season. I, I think it's progressive. I can't even remember what they're advertising, but there's this, this professor like Rick, who's teaching people not to be their parents. Have you seen this guy? Mm-mm. Oh my, so Google these. I don't know what it is. How, how not to be your parents, basically. But he takes new homeowners. He puts them in a class to not be like their parents. And it's just funny as could be. I've done like half the things he's trying to disabuse them of doing. He has one where he's lecturing. He says, and no, the server doesn't need to know your name. <laughs> you know, like at restaurants. <laughs> That's something I do. I introduce okay. everybody at the table. And, Actually, yeah. I was I was going to bring this up, though. This is another thing. You are intent on learning a server's name mm-hmm. and using it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And years later, I still feel guilty when I don't know my server's name. Oh, really? And like, you're not the only person who learns server's names. But there's an intentionality of it. Like you, I've seen you just engage a waitress, waiter, like as a, not as, okay, sometimes people engage them because you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And almost from a, like, I want to be seen as the kind of person who would engage a server. Sure. Kind of position. Yeah. And you ask them, you're always asking them some question they have not been asked that day. Like, this is not a, like, how are you? I'm fine. How's your day? You know, like, you're always asking them like a genuine question. You're getting them to chuckle or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I just, I'm just fascinated by people, Jess. I mean, people all have a story. I mean, you know how many servers I've talked to that now are probably doing some really amazing things. I mean, just hearing their plans, right? A lot of them are maybe working their way through school. A lot of them, I had a server at Denny's, Cheryl, in July in, in Perry Township, Ohio, which is between Maslin and Canton. And uh, she had been working at that Denny's for as long as I've been a police officer. You know, so I'm coming up on 30 years, right? And she'd been working at that Denny's serving so that she could take care of her family. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking about that. And my brother, Michael, and my sister, Mary, were there eating with me. We were in town meeting our other siblings that live in Ohio that we just found in July. I told you Papa what? was a Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. You don't even know about these. I, I've, I have a sister, Cindy, who's 72, a brother, Donnie, who's 71, and a sister, Bonnie, who I think is, I think Bonnie's 67 uh, or 68. Yeah. Yeah. We never knew. Like, we never knew. And they found me. They found me last July and emailed wow. me. Yeah. It's, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. They're rabid Browns fans. So last week, last weekend was a little tough in our family. But, but, but I will tell you that we were there. I was just so like, as we're talking with her and I was just so, so much thinking, man, what would that be like? I had worked at that particular Denny's in high school as a busser. Oh, really? Yeah. 
And it, it was just so, I was just thinking, I said, what would that be like working for, for almost 30 years in a restaurant serving all shifts all, all day, you know, all, you know, all days of the week. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just interested in people. Like, what are they, you know, what has she seen? What has she seen and experienced in that amount of time with all the different customers that come in there? So we did what we typically do and just way over tipped to, on our way out the door. I mean, my, my, my family, we're historic over tippers, but I feel like, you know, people are given to charity, which I do some, but, but I, I, my wife and I talked about this, Shelly and I talked about it like, like, look, I could give to charity for sure. I could give the United way. I don't really know where that money's going necessarily, or I could just try to enrich the lives of the people that are waiting on me and serving me and taking care of me. I could do that. That's another way of giving. And so we just, we just tend to do that. And, that, and I'm not saying that to like say, oh, look how good we are. No, no, There's plenty of things that I am dropping the ball on on a daily basis. But taking yeah, care I of my Yeah, I had a list here. I was just going to go through the <laughs> And look at the time. Much. Look at the time. <laughs> yeah, and look at the time. <laughs> no, for sure. I, I, I'm a work in progress. And, and, and again, it's just, I believe you surround yourself with the kind of people you want to be. And, and that's what I try to do. You know, those guests on the podcast you're talking about, those are all friends of mine thus far. We're getting ready to branch out into a couple of, I've got John McCaskill coming on. We're recording with him on Friday. I'm not, I don't know John. I know his work with veterans and mindfulness and stuff like that. I'm excited. I've got Chloe Valdery coming on. Chloe founded the Theory of Enchantment. Just, it's kind of like a counter narrative to the critical race theory and the anti, the white fragility Robin DiAngelo and Abram, Abram Kendi have written about. She's kind of offering a different path I'm not going to spoil the episode really because I've only been reading. I can't wait to talk to this woman. She's a professor in New Orleans, but a uh, young, young woman, but just that's going to be cool. But again, I don't know her. So, you know, I'm starting to branch out a little bit and, and talking to these guests, Tanner and I, that we, that we don't really know. But the, when you, when we sit back and think about like, I'm looking at that guest list in the first 12 episodes and I'm like, oh my, these people are, are my friends. I mean, they're in my phone. Like I can text them. Like I can get advice. I can get and it just blows me away. I mean, it just seems so surreal. And, you know, I well, put you on that list too, Jess. I mean, when you and I first met, you know, like you were, you were damn successful at a time in my life where I was working three jobs. And, you know, like <laughs> by, by that age, you were already like this big business owner, big investor. You had all these, you're, you're such a, you have such a great business mind. I was like, oh my, I felt pretty damn insignificant when I, when I met you. Like, how did I, like, what was I doing with my life? You know, so again, I, I I appreciate the friendship. I appreciate the you know the opportunity to chat too. Well, let's tell everybody the name of the podcast one more time. The name of the podcast is Changing Discourse. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, anywhere that you find podcasts. And we and, drop a new episode every Thursday. And what's been one of your favorite episodes so far? If they if they want to hop on there today, you know, I really like the Chris Fussell episode because Chris and I uh, we just have a good connection. We're we're kind of cut from the same cloth. Although he's done much more with his cloth, I think. I mean, the guy's, he's, he's awesome. But also, and the Christmas truce episode with Mitch Warner is pretty good. It went a place I didn't know it was going to go with conflict. And I, I, we've gotten a lot of great feedback from that. So, you know, those, those episodes are, yeah, probably, I don't know. It's hard to say, man. I mean, now you get me thinking, right? But I think probably <laughs> if you wanted to jump on and listen to Fussell's episode, my microphone, I don't know if you had this problem, but my microphone for a few episodes, it was high dollar. So I was in denial. Like it was jacked up, but it was so high dollar. I'm like, oh, it can't be the microphone. Like, you know, this this is a high dollar microphone. So I wouldn't change. I finally if changed. Wants, but... If anybody wants the podcast advice, yeah, I bought like a $700 Rode microphone. Yeah. You know what I mean for me? Yeah. And it yeah. ends up like a $60 ATR2100 from Amazon.com, <laughs> super cowboy. It ends up being way better. 
Why and is like, that? The, by the way, have been champs. I don't know. Like, yeah. I'm sure like a $400 Heil or you yeah. know, sure is is probably better. But I, I can't believe what the you know, $60, $70 ATR2100. Yeah. I mean, just a workhorse of a microphone. I recommended it like crazy. Never had anybody come back and say it didn't work for them. No, and, uh, no, I, yeah, I'm I'm on the I'm on the Yeti today, man. I got to tell you, I I like it. You know, Tanner and I both are using these now. And again, we we don't get any money. We don't have any advertisers or anything, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, but 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 I like it, and I, I tell you what I like, and I like this Yeti. It, it's not done me wrong. I won't mention the brand, the other brand of microphone that's in the closet, but it was a little bit more expensive. And I just I can't. <laughs> my wife was like, "What are you going to do with this?" Shelly's like, "What are you going to do with this microphone? You're not using it because she's not into like keeping things. I I am into <laughs> keeping everything because you never know. You just never yeah, know. Yeah. I'm I'm such a pack rat, man. Okay, well let's let's end with this. What what's one more? What's what's another one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? If you don't know, don't do. I received that advice from a retired law enforcement officer when I was 16 years old, and I was always asking people back then, "Hey, you know what advice do you have for me? I want to be a police officer. You know what what advice do you have?" And he said, "If you don't know, don't do." He says, "Look, man," he goes, "You you want to make sure you don't want to just guess. The stuff you're doing is really really important." You know, if you don't don't have the knowledge you need, it's like the only thing the only thing worse than no knowledge is irrelevant knowledge. You know, you you've got to know about the thing you're working on. If you don't know, ask. Don't try to look like the smartest person in the room. Ask. You, you know, and it goes back to there. There aren't any really dumb questions. You just have to you have to know before you do. That's just the first thing that jumped in my head, Jess. I just think that that advice has served me well because my ego gets in the way a lot of times. I want to seem like. I want to show up like, hey, I got all the answers and I feel foolish. I ask a question today at a meeting uh, of my boss. And and as I'm asking it and formulating, I'm thinking, man, she's going to think I'm for not knowing this, but I didn't know. And so I asked her and and she answered it. And I could see a couple other people nodding, which told me they didn't know either. <laughs> so <laughs> since this episode that was, since this episode is basically turned into a giant advertisement for the Arbinger Institute, which yeah, you and I are okay. both hands up. It tends to do uh, <laughs> That Raytheon video, you know, the woman who took over, dang it, what's her name? I got it on the tip of my tongue. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Uh, mm -hmm. She's so great. But that video, you know, that Mitch went out, I think, I don't know if Rex went with him, whatever, but but they, that woman who took over when they got bought by Raytheon, it's all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And she talked about this, like, overcoming the, like, hey, if I ask a question, then this cardboard cutout version of myself that I want everybody to believe in, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, am I diminishing that by not knowing the question, right? And so she asked the smart guy the question and like all these other people around the boardroom table pick up their pencil. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? <laughs> they just don't want to ask it. You know, it's your, it's uh, it's your ego that's getting in the way there. Your ego is preventing you from becoming what you could be. You know, it's, it's trapping you into this, this irrelevant version of yourself. Like you're not able to, to grow. And it's, yeah. I, I feel it too. I mean, I, trust me, there are times I don't ask the question. There are times where I'm just like, oh, somebody else will ask it or I'll, t- I'll email offline or, I mean, there's times that, that my ego wins without a doubt. It's a constant battle. Love it. Well, this has been great. Anything you want to leave with? Or are we good? I think we no, covered I just it. Want, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I love doing this and thank you for setting a great example of what a successful podcast looks like. So, you know, we can, model some of what we're doing off of you. We're really enjoying doing the, you know, we're enjoying this project, this experiment, if you will. And we're hoping it uh, continues to uh, get better. I'm working on it. These, these next 500 episodes are finally going to get good. <laughs> Just, you know. Well, I'll my, see you. I'll see you in, at this rate. I'll see you at episode 1100. <laughs> no, 
we are not waiting another 500 episodes <laughs> to have you back on. This needs to be a much more, this needs to be a much more common occurrence. All right. So. Well, you have your people call my people and you know how we do it, right? Yeah. yeah. I need to get some people. That's what I need, Jess. <laughs> yeah. <Some> people. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. I know.